All right. Well, let's uh, go. Am I really loud? I feel loud. Feel loud. Um, anyways, welcome. Good evening. Glad to see you. We are continuing in our study of biblical theology. Tonight, the game plan is to try to do this in about 30 minutes. Um, I, I have decided that uh, biblical theology is somewhat of a, a black hole. So if you were just to go to the internet and Google biblical theology, Stephen, you're, you're twitching, so I know you've done it. You can just kind of delve into this never-ending void. And so what I'd like to do is actually try to simplify it as best we can. And so I've given us a definition, if you weren't here last week when Robert introduced the topic of biblical theology, and then I've kind of laid out a goal for biblical theology. And then as it relates to our topic of prophet, priest, and king, what I'd like to do instead of teaching at you is I want to kind of just read the Bible in these two passages in particular and just kind of see or gather how these things are there. Because one of the things that I love about biblical theology is that you are doing it when you read the Bible, whether you realize it or not. Now, that doesn't mean you're doing it necessarily right or well, but everybody, when they go to the Bible, they're doing some sort of biblical theology. And look at our definition. Here's why I am confident making that claim. So I put here that biblical theology focuses on interpreting the Bible the way the Bible interprets the Bible. So everyone makes an attempt to interpret the Bible according to the Bible some people do it well, some people do not. But everybody, I think if you were to ask even the most liberal of theologians, they're going to say, oh yes, of course, I want the Bible to interpret the Bible, but that includes my interpretation of the Bible as the Bible interprets the Bible. Eh, right, not right. So what I'm saying is when you look at something like Old Testament Israel, you could go to the Old Testament and you could gather a lot of information on Old Testament Israel. There's a lot to be found there. You could start with Abraham. You could go to Moses. You could follow them through the Exodus. You could look at their series of judges. You could look at the kings. There's a lot that you can gain from Israel. But to do biblical theology, what you would want to make sure you do is also go see what Paul has to say about Old Testament Israel. And so that's what biblical theology does. Biblical theology seeks to interpret the Bible with the Bible. So that means the goal of biblical theology is to help us see how God's redemptive story unfolds from Genesis to Revelation. So there's one cohesive story in all of Scripture from the very beginning to the very end, and biblical theology helps us to unfold that story so what I would say is that story basically revolves around redemptive history. That is what God is doing in terms of his son, Jesus Christ. And so from the very beginning in Genesis to the very end in Revelation, what we end up understanding as we read through the Bible is that this whole thing only makes sense if we rightly understand God's purpose in Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do this evening is we're going to look at a specific method of biblical theology called typology. Now, all typology is, and that sounds weird and crazy, hang with me, all typology does really is look at shadows 
in one place of the Bible and find the substance elsewhere, right? So what is a shadow? A shadow is something that's cast from either an object or a person. And so the shadow is not the thing itself, but the shadow is a representation of the thing. And so, for instance, tonight we're going to look at prophet, priest, and king, and we're going to look at these shadows, and we're going to work our way through the Bible pretty, pretty quickly at a, at a really kind of high level. We're not going to get really, really deep, but we're going to look at these shadows and how these shadows actually point us to the substance, right? The thing casting the shadow, the thing that we're actually longing for, the thing that we're actually looking for, the thing that we're left wanting whenever the shadows let us down, right? Because shadows are kind of lame. For a little while in your life, this is awesome. But for like, I don't know, maybe a year and a half. I'm, I have four boys, and at the age of three, they're all like, oh, that's, that's cool, Dad. I knew that when I was one, right? Shadows are not really, honestly, that intriguing. We want the substance. We want the real thing. We want the fullness of what the shadow is pointing to. So that's what typology is. It's seeing the shadow and finding the substance of the shadow. So how do, how do you do something like that? How do you do something like typology? Because it sounds like something that scholars or pastors do, but what I want you to realize is that as you read your Bibles, as you read from Genesis to Revelation, as you go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, as you kind of interpret the Bible and see these themes you actually do this yourself. Now, you may not walk away thinking, you know, I would love to te teach a class on biblical typology, but you might say things like, man, I really do see how Jesus is the better Moses. Man, I, I knew, I knew that bronze serpent, I knew it when I read it, that there was something more to that rascal, right? We, we do it as we read. And why is it something that we naturally do? Well, I believe it's because we're, in, we're, excuse me, we're not inspired by the Holy Spirit. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. It's, it's just the process of being good readers. It's the process of reading stories and, and seeking to understand them well. And I, like I said before, the Bible has a unified story that we're, we're looking for. And so as you leave the Old Testament and go into the New Testament, the hope is that the shadows become clearer and the substance becomes more focused as you get to Jesus, right? The, the thing itself gets really exciting. And so that's what we're going to look at this evening with prophet, priest, and king. And per, in particular, why the culmination of prophet, priest, and king in the person of Jesus is so important for us to understand. So what I'd like to do is I would like to just look through this together. You have the notes that I passed out there on these tables around here. And we're going to look at Three passages of Scripture in particular. The first two are going to be in Genesis 1 and 2, so you can go ahead and turn your Bibles there. But while you're doing that, I want to pray for our time together this evening, that the Lord will bless our time, and that we won't simply walk away with more information this evening, but we'll walk away loving God's Word, desiring God's Word, and, and seeking to be studious readers of, of His Word. So let's do that now. Well, Father God, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this time that we have to come together and have a meal and hang out and chat, but also to dig into your word a little bit. Oh, Father, I'm, I'm, it, it's not lost on me that this moment right now 
is a moment that many around the world would quite literally die for. And so, Father, I pray that you would make us attentive to your word, not the words that I say, but the words of truth in your scriptures, that you would use them to grow us in our faith and stretch us, and that you would use these things to motivate us for your glory and for the good of your people all around the world. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so the first heading here is seeing the story unfold. And I want to look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and Genesis 2, verses 15 through 16. Obviously, we're going to look at Adam, who is a failed prophet, priest, and king. So Genesis 1, 26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish and the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, you may be thinking, how on earth is Adam a prophet, a priest, or a king. He's literally a naked man in a brand new garden, right? That's who he is. Well, in these two passages, the role that Adam is given is actually fleshed out for us pretty clearly. First off, he's, he's, he's to, to have dominion over God's creation, right? That word dominion is not like just a word that was chosen out of the air, like, oh, dominion sounds pretty nice. No, dominion has connotations of rule, of, of kingship. And we, we know this to the point that Adam is actually given the role of naming the animals. I think sometimes we think, well, how did he come up with these names? And, you know, you may be teaching Sunday school to little kids, and they have all kinds of things. Like, well, how did he come up with this? Well, why didn't he call it this? And you're like, I have no idea. But the reality is naming animals is a really big deal because in essence, what Adam is being called to do is he's calling, called to be a co-creator with God, right? He's not breathing out of nothing into existence, but he's giving names to something that had never had a name before. And in fact, he's even given the task of meeting with his wife and procreating and creating others to fill this world. And so this dominion is actually a type of kingship that he has. He is to be a, in, in co-dominion with God himself over God's creation. The second thing that we're told about his role is that he's to work and keep the garden. This is a priestly role. Now, this one's the hardest to get to. But it's really helpful. You can flip over if you want. But Numbers chapter 3, I think verses 7 and 8, it actually uses these same Hebrew words, and it talks about ministering and guarding in terms of the work they do inside of the tabernacle. Now, what is the tabernacle? The tabernacle is where God dwells and meets with his people. Well, Adam, even before the Levites come onto the scene, is called to minister and guard or work and keep the garden. Well, what is the garden? The garden is where the glory of the Lord resides with his people and where he meets them. 
And you can see then that Adam actually does have the role of a priest here. He's to guard what? He's to guard the holiness of the garden. This is where the Lord walks. This is where the Lord meets with his people. This is where the Lord is worshipped perfectly and in truth by his creation, Adam and Eve. Right? And then finally, he's responsible for sharing God's instruction with Eve. You'll note here in Genesis chapter 2 that he is given this warning, well actually first a command, and then a warning before Eve is ever created. Now, how does Eve know what to do? Because Adam is responsible for telling her. He's a prophet. He's given the role of explaining to his wife the things that they are to do and the things that they are not to do in terms of how their life is going to culminate in worshiping their creator. That's pretty cool. But unfortunately, Genesis 3 always follows Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You can try to get around it. You can even flip over real quick in Genesis chapter 4, but the damage is done, right? In fact, so there's a, this is a good little book. I've only made it halfway through, so I'm not recommending it to you, but what I've read, it's really phenomenal. It's a, a pastor in the UK. His name is John T. Rhodes, and it doesn't relate exactly to what's happening here in this message this evening, but it's, it's called Man of Sorrows, King of Glory, and he's talking about the role of prophet, priest, and king, but as it relates to Christ's humiliation, that is, he was a prophet, priest, and king up to the point of the cross, but also in the resurrection, Jesus is still prophet, priest, and king. Right? This, is his, this is his ministry, unto death and even unto life in the resurrection. But there's this really cool um, little, little chapter, or this little paragraph here, that I think is so helpful as we are moving away now from Genesis and Adam and his failure as a prophet, priest, and king. And this sums it up really well. He says, a man was in a garden. He was a good man, holy, happy, healthy, but he was alone and his father saw it. So the father gently put the man to sleep and pierced his side. From the flesh, of, from the flesh and bone of the man came a bride. And when the man awoke and saw her, he sang for joy. But there was a serpent in the grass, and the serpent was full of poison and unable to attack the Almighty Father. And so he struck at the bride and said, The bride was in danger, but the man was there. The mighty king commissioned to protect her, the faithful prophet to warn her, the zealous priest to guard the holiness of his beloved and her sanctuary. It was time to crush the serpent's head. The man stayed still. The man stayed silent. His sword stayed sheathed. The serpent struck. The bride fell. So begins the story of the world. You know, as we leave Genesis chapter 3, obviously, as we read through Scripture, we see this moment where we think, but there's still hope. There's one who is going to crush the head of the serpent. And we begin to wonder, okay, so how is this thing resolved? Who is the snake crusher? Who is he? When does he come onto the scene? And, and how is he going to do this work? And how is he going to redeem what Adam has failed in? And so as we make our way in, 
to Genesis and into Exodus and Leviticus and all the way to 1 Samuel, we begin to see people like the prophet Moses. And we think, is Moses the one? He's not. Then we get to, well, even before that in Genesis 14, we get to to the king priest Melchizedek, and we think, Melchizedek is a pretty bad dude. Is he the one? No? So not Moses, not Melchizedek the priest. David. David's the one. The runt. The one who slays Goliath for his people. David is our prophet, priest, and king. David is the one who's going to redeem what Adam failed. David. But each of them let us down. You don't even have to read that many chapters in the life of any of these people to realize this ain't the dude. This is not him. This is not the one who is going to redeem us. This is not the one who is going to reverse the effects of the fall. This is not the one who is going to restore what we had in Eden at one time. It's none of these people. And so what we do is we read our Bibles, we continue to look for this prophet, priest, and king. And that's the wise thing to do is to keep turning the pages of Scripture, right? You don't stay with the problem and think, okay, well, okay, how do I find it? (laughs) You can do that, and you'll find some semblance of an answer, probably even the right answer, depending on which book you turn into, right? I went to Hebrews. Most likely, you're going to find the answer there. But the story unfolds the way it unfolds for a reason, because the Bible is taking these shadows, and it's focusing them bit by bit by bit until our focus is clear and we see the substance of the shadow. We find what we're looking for. We find what we're longing for. And so we do eventually find this. As we see all of the failures through all of Scripture, right? Saul, he's a loser. Not him. Aaron, not Aaron. It's, it's nobody. And eventually you get to the point where the prophets come in and you're like, man, this stuff is really bad. This is hopeless. In fact, most of these things are real depressing. And you even get into like a Jeremiah 31 where you have the new covenant and you're like, yes. And even then it's still a little depressing. And then between Malachi and Matthew, you have 400 years of silence. And for 400 years, they're waiting to see who this prophet, priest, and king is. They're they're waiting for the one who will undo what Adam has done. And so we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Now, I want to make a caveat up front. There are a lot of better passages individually you can go to that literally say things like prophet, priest, and king. But the reason I wanted to come to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is twofold. Number one, you never have those words actually muttered in Genesis chapter 1 or 2. And so I want us to see that you don't have to have the word there for the story and the theme and the thing to make sense. Number two, John Calvin (laughs) said that this is probably the one place in all of Scripture that we see prophet, priest, and king together in one passage. 
And for those reasons, number one, the Bible, secondarily, John Calvin, I shall also go there this evening. So Christ, the perfect prophet, priest, and king. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Here Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what is Paul doing here in in this passage of Scripture, particularly in verse uh, 30 and 31? Well, he's telling us who Christ is. I mean, he, he says as much, this, this is who Jesus is, this is what he's come to be. So, what are these things that Paul claims of Jesus? Well, first, in verse 30, he says, he became to us wisdom from God. Okay, what is wisdom? Well, wisdom from God must mean wisdom from God. All truth, everything that God has, all of God's mind, all of God's purposes culminate in Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 tells us that the Word was made flesh, and in fact that the Word is actually Jesus. So, Jesus, according to Paul, is the incarnation of wisdom. He is the Word of God. That is, He is the perfect prophet. Right? He, he is literally the revealed Word of God to God's people. So, He's a prophet. And now, we don't have to make a stretch to get there if you're like, well, I don't really see that. Well, here's the beauty of biblical theology. You should read the whole Bible, and I promise you, you'll see it. So he is the wisdom of God, according to Paul. He says he is righteousness and sanctification and redemption. What is that? What's well, a priestly role? He, he's a priest. He's not a, a means of getting righteousness or a means of getting sanctification or a means of getting redemption. He is those things. He actually is the high priest, the good, the perfect, the better Melchizedek. Jesus Christ in the flesh. And then finally, Paul tells us in verse 31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, the, the New King James, or excuse me, the King James Version rather, and also the Greek is easily translated glory. So it, it, it can read in a King James Version, let the one who glories, glory in the Lord. Well, in fact, what do you actually boast in? You boast in something worth boasting in, right? And if we're boasting in the Lord, that is Jesus Christ, that is the one who and by and through all things are made, the one who is God in the flesh, the God-man, 
If we're boasting in Him, what we're actually doing is ascribing all glory to Him. Who do you ascribe all glory to? A king. One worthy of boasting in. One worthy of glory. So I think pretty easily here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you can see these roles or this office of prophet, priest, and king resting in the person of Jesus Christ. But I don't want us to miss actually something just as important as that here. Look at verse 30 again. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became. Became what? Oh, well, wisdom, blah, 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 boast in him. Well, I think there's a little more to the story. If you turn to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that we're not just looking at Jesus Christ, God, who became these things, right? You don't become what you've always been. Has there ever been a moment that Jesus hasn't been the wisdom of God? Absolutely not. Has there ever been a time that Jesus wasn't worthy of boasting or glory? Absolutely not. So what's happening? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 45 through 49. Paul says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a, living, a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as it is, and excuse me, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What did Jesus become? What did God become? A man. God became a man. What that means for us, as we look to Adam, this first Adam, this natural father that we have, is we see failure and death. That's Adam's legacy. But what Paul is telling us is that there is a second Adam. There is a better Adam. There is finally a prophet, priest, and king who will do what Adam could not do. He will keep what Adam could not keep. And so by the time you get to Jesus, what you end up seeing is that Jesus actually is the substance. He's the clearest focus of all of the shadows. When you look at Adam and see his failure, you can see Jesus. When you look to Moses and you see the, the beautiful story of, of bringing out God's people from under the, the reign of Pharaoh, releasing them from the bondage of captivity, you can see Jesus. 
When you see David, the awesome king, with all of his failures, you get to see Jesus. And in each of those moments, as you look and you're let down and wondering, who is the one who brings us back into worship? Who is the one who brings us back into communion? It's Jesus. It's no one before him. And it's no one after him. It's only Jesus. Now, what we have done is we have done biblical theology in a way where we've started in a place and we've kind of skipped to another. Now, we've made reference to all the things that happen in between, but this is the beauty of biblical theology, is that it reveals the whole counsel of God's Word to us. It shows us the full picture that God has always had in mind. And so when we say something like redemption history, redemption history just so you know, does not start in the book of Genesis and end in the book of Revelation. It begins in eternity past with God, and it goes into eternity future with God, with Christ, and with us. That's the beauty of God's story. All right, so what are some implications quickly for faith and life as we think about something like prophet, priest, and king? Well, they're really simple, and I've said most of them. So what I'm going to do is I'm just simply going to read these things to you. So number one is Jesus as prophet, priest, and king shows us what Jesus has done and what he continues to do. So as prophet, point A, Jesus revealed, that is past tense, and instructs, that is continuing, us in God's plan of redemption. So as our perfect prophet, the 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 whole word of God centers around the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so no matter where you go in all of the Bible, the prophet Jesus Christ will inform the way you interpret the word of God. He is the final standing truth of all things. No matter where you are in all of the Bible, all things will find their culmination in Jesus as prophet. Point B, as priest, Obviously, Jesus made a perfect, once-for-all, holy, satisfying sacrifice for the penalty of our sin. There was no other person who could do that. Why? Because he himself is the sacrifice. He is both fully God and both fully man, and he laid down his own life for his people. No priest could do that. Nobody had that offering to give except Jesus. But his role of priest didn't just end with the cross of Jesus Christ. It continues, or the, yeah, the cross, it continues even today because now Jesus as our priest, he is interceding between God and man, and he's also bestowing God's blessings upon us. So through Jesus, we have full access to God, right? At one point in the temple and even the tabernacle, there was a veil that was placed before the holy place, and the people. And only the high priest could go into that place once a year. Well, before that, that holy place actually existed in the garden, and Adam and Eve were free to walk about in the glory of God. But because of sin, the glory of God and the sinfulness of man couldn't coexist. You would literally die. And so there was this veil that was placed. Well, 
in Matthew in particular, after Jesus is crucified, after he mutters his last breath, the, the scriptures tell us that there was this quake of the whole earth and the veil was torn. Why was the veil torn? Because the glory of the Lord, the glory of God, was going to dwell not only amongst the people, but with them, in them. And so Jesus, as our great high priest, gives us full access into the glory of God. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is actually the glory of God in the face. As king, Jesus is ruling and reigning as the sovereign king over all of creation, and in particular, the church. Now, what's the encouragement there? Nothing stands outside of his dominion. Not one thing. R.C. Sproul famously said, there's not one rogue molecule in all of the universe. That extends to kings, to principalities, to rulers. There's nothing outside of the sovereign will of God. And his plan for his people as our king is sure always. And then number two, Jesus has done for his bride what Adam could not do for his. So Jesus made us holy, and he's going to keep us that way. What Jesus has done is he's gathered his children, his beloved, his bride, into a new Eden called the church. And from that new Eden, we will never be cast out. We will never be separated from the glory of God again. We will never be separated from the ability to worship God in spirit and truth personally. And so as you think about something like this, it can be daunting, but I assure you, as you read your Bible, things like a prophet, priest, and king, things like what Robert did last week with creation, you'll just see the way they unfold. And it's one of my favorite aspects of all of the Bible is realizing that the Bible is just one big cohesive story that God has given us. And so I pray that that encourages you. What I'd like to do now is pray for us. Do we want to do some prayer or we just want to go home? I'm looking at you, Robert. You want me to pray? Let's do that. All right. Act like that conversation between me and Robert right now just didn't happen and I knew what was happening, okay? All right, so what I'd like to do now, I have made up in my own mind, is that I'm going to pray and you're just going to chat and hang out. Is that right, Robert? Okay. All right. Father God, thank you so much for this evening that we've had together. Thank you for allowing us this moment to get into your word. Thank you for this moment of allowing us to gather together. I pray that you would use this time to encourage us, that you would use this word to uplift us, to point our eyes to the beauty of Jesus Christ and his gospel and that you would help us to see truly the ways in which Christ is prophet, priest, and king in our lives even now, and how that explains and exposes God's story of redemption, not only in the Bible, but in our lives. I pray that you would use us to glorify your name. I pray that you would give us a zeal to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who we will come in contact with in the following days. And that in all things you would be uplifted and glorified and exalted and that your name would be made famous through your church. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.